Okay, so I'm back for part two after uh, a whole week away on year nine school camp. So this might be the first time in church history where the preacher is the one who is at great risk of falling asleep during the sermon rather than the members of the congregation, but we'll see how we go. So, but no, so today's the, yeah, the second part of a, a two-part mini-series, uh, yeah, going through through one of my, my favorite passages in, in the Bible as well. So, um, yeah, Paul's final sea voyage uh, across the Mediterranean, the shipwreck on Malta. Um, yeah, la- last week we didn't have much of it in the Bible reading, but I thought, uh, yeah, it's it's such a good narrative that it was worth, uh, yeah, getting Phil to, to read the whole thing through with with gusto as well, and yeah, just such a such a great story and such a great um, first-hand eyewitness account, and and that, that's what we looked at last week was looking at the uh, archaeological evidence, the evidence within the text that that sort of points towards this being Luke was there on the ship writing an eyewitness account so much detail that it includes about the ship, about sailing in the Mediterranean, certain language that he uses, nautical language, the, the descriptions of the coastline, the type of ship, so many different things that we went through uh, that just points towards Luke was there, uh, he knows what he was talking about, he wasn't just making up some story to add a bit of an excitement to the end of book of a- uh, the book of Acts. And the main reason why I wanted to stress that last week uh, about why it's historically accurate is because it matters whether it really happened. You know, all, all of what we read in the Gospels and the Book of Acts, it makes a difference whether it's historically true or if it's just a, a made-up fictional account. You know, it matters whether it's a bunch of, you know, nice stories or morality tales or if it's history. And it's important that we know that it's a record of history because this is recording God at work in history. It's how we learn about how God works. It's how we learn about his character. Now, I said last week that I, I'd love to see this passage turned into a, you know, a, a Hollywood blockbuster movie, or maybe not done by Hollywood, but at least a movie. Um, but it would be difficult to actually encapsulate this passage in a movie because there's a lot more going on than just what we see in the human characters, because God is at work behind the scenes, uh, which is a little bit more difficult to show in, in a movie. And so that's what I want to look at today as, as we go through this passage again. Uh, I want to look at what we can learn about God uh, and what he's doing in, in this passage in the midst of all the chaos and the fear and the eventual rescue. So I'll, I'll be skimming over plenty of, of details. We're not going to cover verse by verse the whole thing, so uh, feel free to come up and ask me questions afterwards about more nitty-gritty details. But yeah, I just, just want to take a look at what we learn about the character of God uh, in the midst of this uh, shipwreck account. And, and again, thanks to, for Phil for reading out that passage, but I just wanted to quickly give a, a, a recap because I like getting our heads around what exactly was going on. So this is just a quick overview of the whole the whole passage was that they they left from Caesarea in Israel. This is where Paul was on trial, and they they um, say, "Yep, we're going to send." He appeals to Caesar, and they're going to send him all the way to Rome, the top of Italy, just off of the screen. Uh, so they end up going ar- around Cyprus up to Myra, where they change onto an Alexandrian grain ship. So this is where they change to the much much bigger ship, uh, and then coast uh, going along the coast there, underneath Crete, they stop for a bit, and this is where they. Uh, debate whether they should continue on and Paul warns them that it is far too dangerous but they ignore him they continue on trying to make it to the other end of Crete here 
and they get blown off course all the way to Malta, which I looked it up last night on Google Earth with the good old uh, ruler thing. What is it? The um, as the crow flies thing. It was about a th- um, from from Crete to Malta is about a thousand kilometres, so uh, quite the fair distance to be uh, tossed about in the sea. Was it four, fourteen days? Uh, yeah, the the seasickness will be getting pretty serious by that stage. Okay, so. PowerPoint thing don't work on that. Never mind. Uh, okay, so I won't be reading through the whole passage again, uh, but I want to draw your attention to a, a couple of things really early on in this passage. Uh, and and the first thing is the sense that things are going wrong. You, you get that, you know, it's not that everything starts off really well and then, a, you know, later on down the track there's some big catastrophic event. It, it things, things seem pretty bad from pretty early on. Uh, you know, so ver- verse four uh, it says, and 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 putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. So o- already changing course a little bit, things are going wrong. Already, already windy. And they swapped to a bigger ship in, in Myra, in ver- uh, and then from verse seven and eight onwards, they had difficulty off of Snidus. Uh, it sounds like they uh, again they had to change course from their original plans. Uh, it says they sailed under the, the lee of Crete with great difficulty because the the wind did not allow us. So again, you're already having to to change course. And so it's not just that everything was going wrong. You know, perhaps for some of us, there's there's something even worse than something going wrong, and that's things not going to plan. I, I don't know if that's an even worse thing for you. Not not just that things go wrong, but things don't go the way how I planned it and how I wanted it to go. And it. it I'm not the only one, I hope, to think, you know, do you cope when things don't go the way that you planned? You know, when you come to that realisation that you're not actually in control of everything, that you're not in control over your life or the way that the world is panning out, you know, over the last few years with COVID and things like that, you know, of, of your work or your, or your family life, that things didn't turn out the way that you expected or, or planned. You know, e- even when we thought it was God's plan, we thought that we were in the will of God. I mean, you know, e- even Paul, he was told that he was going to be sent to Rome. So he, he knows what the will of the Lord is. So he, he, he should know that he's going to be sent to Rome. So it should be all smooth sailing from there to Rome. But perhaps it's not wise to presume God's plan and how he's going to get us there. You know, Proverbs tells us a lot about how we can plan many things, but ultimately God is the one who's in control. You know, pr- Proverbs 16.1 says the plans of the heart belong to man but the answer of the tongue is from the lord at the end of that passage in in proverbs 16:33 it says the lot is cast into the lap but every decision is from the lord uh, proverbs 19:21 says many are the plans in the mind of a man but it is the purpose of the lord that will stand and that that's actually a good thing to remind ourselves of that that we're ac- we are actually not in control and like letting letting go sounds like something that should induce fear, you know, letting go of our control over our lives. But but we're not giving it up to a meaningless cosmos, you know, just just chaos where we're handing over control to a God who actually does have authority and control. Uh, there's always a chance that things cannot go according to our plan, but there isn't a chance that things cannot go according to God's plan. It's really good to remind ourselves, you know, in the midst of these storms that 
nothing can happen outside of God's sovereign plan. You know, e- even when it involves suffering, even when it involves pain, you know, e- even when we have absolutely no idea what's going on, you know, it, it's still it's still comforting to know there is one who has control, e- even over the waves that are battering the ship. There's a, a quote, quote from R.C. Sproul uh, that says that there are no maverick molecules in a universe where God is sovereign. Uh, and, and that's a strange and, and comforting reality that, you know, even as the, the molecules that, that form uh, waves in the ocean that crash against the ship, you know, God is still in control of every one of those atoms. You know, we, d- we don't, that doesn't mean that we know what his plans are when things are going so wrong. You know, we, we don't know why things are going wrong sometimes. A- and, and we don't know, you know, how God's going to use that. You know, obviously th- things can still go wrong. Things can still be terribly painful. We can still make bad choices. Yeah. But, it, but in the midst of it, nothing happens apart from the sovereign decree of God. And that's, that's a, a massive comforting thing. You know, and that that doesn't mean that we respond if you know someone's just lost a loved one to cancer. We don't. Oh well, God's in control. You know that that somehow the pain isn't a reality. You know, it, d- it doesn't mean that the pain isn't real. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't weep with those who weep. But but it changes our our perception of these things. It changes our perception of suffering. That that God is still at work somehow because we know that He's in control, and, and we'll we'll see that much more clearly late later on some reason it's showing all of my points instead of one by one because it's not in powerpoint but that's all right it's giving away you know later on in the sermon but that's all right we'll get there um but i I have often heard people uh, bristle against the idea of god being in control over everything you know that that god is sovereign in the midst of suffering uh like they they, they can't handle that thought because it kind of sounds like we're, we're blaming god that maybe he's doing something bad or doing something wrong But, but not only is, is God's sovereignty biblical, it, it's actually that the, the alternative is much worse. That, you know, it, it's far greater to trust in a God who declares the end from the beginning than a God who doesn't have control over the storm or who didn't see it coming or can't use it for your good. It, it's so much better to know that God is sovereign in the midst of the storm. where we know he hasn't deserted us he's still with us in the midst of the storm okay so the next thing is that that god is is the expert so not only is god is not only is god in control but he knows what's best for us Uh, so let's quickly read just verses uh, 9 to 11 says since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over paul advised them saying Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only to the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than what Paul said. So at this stage, we, we don't actually know if this was just uh, Paul's wise advice or if there's some kind of divine knowledge given here. Uh, we, we do see that later on in the passage where an angel of the Lord comes to Paul and tells him exactly what's going to happen, that no lives will be lost. Um, but e- either way, it, it turns out that Paul was right and they were wrong. 
you know, they, they opted to listen to anyone but God and his messengers. And I know that we're tempted to do the same thing. You know, in, in a world of uh, competing ideas about every imaginable topic we get to hear everyone's opinion, as, you know, especially in the, the age of the internet, which uh, can be a good thing to, to give a voice to, to everyone, but it can also mean that we hear opinions about absolutely everything on a daily basis, so many conflicting ideas. Uh, and, and I know that, that Christians are not immune from soaking up all these things. But we're called to listen to God and his word. You know, not the world, not the experts, not the majority opinion, which um, was la- later on in that passage, it says the majority of them decided to keep, mov- keep sailing on. Well, it was the majority opinion, but it doesn't matter. It was, the, it was the wrong idea. We're not called to listen to the majority opinion, not called to listen to the latest or newest or greatest theory. We're not called to believe whatever feels right for us. You know, as long as it's true for you or it feels right for you, we're called to listen to God and his word and his messengers. Sometimes we listen to our culture or the world without actually stopping and and thinking, you know, what does God's word have to say about this? And and there's nothing wrong with with reading books and even from from, uh, secular people, you know, reading books on on parenting or marriage or, or financial advice or wha- whatever it is, but, but we should be first and foremost going to the Word of God and seeing what that says and weighing up all other opinions against the Word of God. And it's also important, uh, and, I, and I've learned this, that, that the hard way in times of suffering is that it's, it's really easy to go to the Word of God once you find yourself in this dis- difficult situation and then you go, oh, well, now I better look up what the Word of God has to say about it when it's, it's already too late. Uh, it, it's already there and instead we should already be shaping our hearts and our minds through the Word. You know, you wouldn't, uh, you know, give birth in the delivery room and then go and buy a parenting book to see what on earth to do. You, you prepare beforehand and, and the same is true with all, you know, all instances of life, uh, of dealing with suffering and, and living out the Christian life. We prepare beforehand by, by shaping our thoughts through the Word of God. And so like the centurion should have done, we're, we're called to listen to God, not, not the so-called experts. The, the captain, the, the sailors, the owner of the ship. And listening to experts can can be a good thing. I'm not saying we ignore all advice, you know, all professional advice, all doctors, th- things like that. You know, we should consult professionals in their field, but we al- should also weigh up what they have to say in light of the evidence, in light of the truth of the Word of God. You know, sometimes people are called experts because they know what they're talking about. But, you know, sometimes they're seen of, as experts simply because they're in a position of authority or power. And, you know, this is what happened with Paul. He, he was the experienced one. You know, I mean, they probably were too, but, but he had had tremendous experience traveling across the Mediterranean, uh, you know, I mean, or, and, and with plenty of bad experiences, as we'll see from the passage later on, that he's actually been shipwrecked uh, a few times. So this wasn't his first uh, rodeo in the Mediterranean. Uh, but he w- so he was very experienced when it came to came to traveling around the Mediterranean, but he was ignored because the, the captain or the pilot of the ship and the ship's owner had more sway with the centurion. 
they were the experts. They were, they were the powerful and the elite, the influential. But it didn't matter because they were wrong. And, and, and not only were they, they influential, but they obviously had a, a vested interest, which is, which is always worth looking for. Uh, you know, the ship's owner and, and the pilot, they were the ones who were going to get paid for delivering the grain in Rome, and they were the ones who said, oh, we should definitely keep going and get to Rome. You know, it's, it's pretty obvious what they, were, what they were wanting here. They weren't concerned about the safety of the crew. They were concerned about getting paid at the end. And they didn't want to just go and anchor up for the entire winter on Crete and have to wait until the next season to get their shipment there. Only example I could think of in my own life was was uh, when I was a kid. You know, a, an orthodontist told me that that I would need braces, and I wasn't keen on the idea. Went back to the dentist, and he took one look and said, "Oh no, you're fine." I said, "Well, what did he say that for?" I said, "Oh, well, he's the one who's going to get paid." So, and and, and it, it is worth looking out for. You know, what what are the vested interests in all the expert opinions that we see? Why why are they saying what they're saying? What's their motivation behind it? You know, when people reject God's law, when they reject his existence, what, what's the underlying motivation? What's the, the ethical reasons behind it? But, you know, there's not always a vested interest. Sometimes it's simply about weighing up what the Word of God says compared to the so-called experts. You know, th there's lots of things that we have to work through, you know, when it comes to the role of science in, in our faith. You know, what, what do the so-called experts say about, you know, the age of the earth or creation evolution? You know, do, do we listen to what, what people, you know, what these, the so-called experts are saying or do we listen to the word of God? Although, once again, maybe there is a vested interest in, in those examples that I've given. You know, the, the ethics prof professors who make outlandish claims without the foundation of the Bible, do, do we take on board what they have to say about you know, the definition of marriage, or do we listen to the Word of God? You know, there, there, there are a ton of controversial political topics of our age that I could have picked, um, you know, to, to demonstrate, but I'll, I'll, ju I'll just stick with, with one um, when it comes to listening to the, to the experts or, or the Word of God. Uh, I, th I think a good example is, is something like climate change, um, or, or probably it's more extreme cousin of, of climate alarmism. So full, full disclosure, though, uh, you know, w without going into it, come and talk to me afterwards, maybe. Uh, I, I think that humans actually are really, really good at destroying the environment. I think it's a good way in which humans can sin is by failing miserably to be good stewards of his creation. I think we should be concerned about looking after other humans and looking after the environment. And we should be concerned about... You know, children growing up in towns where we uh, burn coal and, and they have horrible lung diseases as a result. You know, that, that's an area of injustice that I think Christians actually do fail miserably to, to look out for. So that's my opening caveat. But I've also spoken to several people who are terrified that the ocean will have no more life in it within the next 10 years and that humanity will go extinct within a generation or two. Know, genuine fears they, they they can't bear the thought of having children because they know humanity will end you know in, w within our lifetime or within the next 50 years or so and is, is, is that thinking shaped by the word of God though you know do, do, do we live in that kind of fear or do we go okay let's see what the word of God says you know and oh well actually no I'm, I'm not actually that worried about the end of the world 
ending in that way because we know how it ends. We have a word that tells us the beginning from the end. But maybe that's not what we're fearful of. You know, maybe, maybe not within the church. We're not. Although the person that I was talking about does actually go to church. Right? But maybe that's not what we're fearful of. You know, I know that the church can be swept up in, in all sorts of conspiracies, you know, fearful of a, a, of a one world government, you know, plots to destroy the church forever with lockdowns, will never be able to open up ever again. You know, fearful hysteria that, you know, population control or mind control from the vaccine that will turn out to be the mark of the beast. You know, people, people are swept up in this hysteria when we claim to follow a God that says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You know, we, we don't need to be fearful of losing our salvation by accidentally taking the mark of the beast. You know. we, we listen to all these other voices and opinions that aren't actually shaped by the word of God. You know, our, our fears are shaped by them more than the word of God. But instead, we're to trust in God, not in the opinions of men. So hopefully everyone's sufficiently offended after that. So great, moving on. So the third point is, is that God never promises calm seas. You know, as, as we continue on in our passage, things go from bad to worse. In, in verse uh, 13 to 20 is, is uh, that, that great, uh, which went through the Uriquillo, that, that northeaster, that horrible, tempestuous wind that struck against them. There's just so many things going wrong. I, I won't read out the, the whole passage, but it, um, let's see. From, from verse 17, after hoisting it up, uh, they used the ports to undergird the ship because the ship was going to break apart. And fearing they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, the ships tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. It sounds kind of bad, right? You know, crazy winds, driven out of control. And, and it must have been so rough that the fact that they actually feared that the ship would break up in the middle of the ocean. You know, when you think of shipwrecks, you think, okay, they, they got pushed all the way until they ran aground either on sandbars or on uh, up against rocks. That's the thing that's going to you know, cause you to come undone. But here, they're out in the middle of the ocean and they're having to tie ropes around it because just of the violent waves was going to smash them to pieces out in the middle of the ocean. I... I, I genuinely can't even imagine what it must have been like. And that last line really sums up their attitude. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. You know, does, does that sound like people who are living their best life now? Um, yeah, and that, that's, this is related to, to my first point, that, that God is in control. But, but it's really important that we remember that God never actually promises calm seas in our lives he's never promised us a life free from suffering and i mean it, it seems ridiculous to say it because i think we've all experienced that we all know that life isn't free from suffering uh, you know particularly after becoming christians yes things are so much better that we know god that we have salvation we have forgiveness of sins but to say that it's free from suffering is, is just delusional No, I know. I know. Years ago, in my preaching, uh, in my um, young and 
probably more reckless days. You know, I, I used to you know pre- preach against the prosperity gospel lots because it, you know I saw it as this massive deal that I should speak against. And I haven't mentioned it in a while because maybe it's something that's died down. Uh, you know, maybe it has less influence here in Australia. Um, you know, it's got a bit of a bad reputation and false teachers don't get away with it as easily now saying that God's going to make you rich and always wants you to be healthy. Um, or maybe I'm just not in those circles as much anymore and I'm not being exposed to it as much. But but more recently, I, I have come across this teaching in, in, mo- in more subtle ways. Um, you know, a, a lot more subtle than just the, the American televangelist, you know, dancing around on piles of cash kind of thing. Um, it was, it was, you know, ju- just a couple of weeks ago, you know, I saw, saw a, a preacher speak to a bunch of country people, uh, you know, a lot of farmers, you know, who, who claimed that, that God has given us authority over our sphere in life, you know, over, over the, the land that we've been given, the, the, the things, you know, the things in our life that we've been entrusted with, and the example for farmers would be the land that you've been given. And that we could speak against crop damage, you know, things things like frost or, or rust, which is a ty- type of fungus, you know, or bushfires, or you know, probably in our case, you know, torrential rain over harvest probably has the the greatest risk for us. You know, a- anything that could hinder us, we could we could speak against those things, and we and we could claim these things with confidence because, you know, God would never want you to suffer. He wants you to prosper, and he wants your your crops to flourish. But, but it's nonsense. When, when we read through passages like this in, in Acts and we read the, the, the life of Jesus and the life of Paul, you know, where in this passage do we see the, the ease of the Christian life? You know, the, the continual state of comfort that the Apostle Paul is in when he's on this ship. You know, like, like, like imagine Paul preaching this message, you know, on, on, on the, the back deck of the ship, you know, wa- waves are, are crashing over the deck, but you can hear Paul trying to shout over the waves, you know, Jesus wants you to live life to the full as they're trying to save their own lives. And, you know, they, they have no way, no idea where they are, no way of navigating, you know, and, and, and Paul preaches that, you know, you, you have the power and authority, you know, to control your destiny, but they're being tossed to and from with no idea where they are. You know, they're, they're jettisoning, jettisoning their, their cargo off the ship. They're throwing wheat into the ocean and saying, but God wants your crops to prosper. You know, it, it just, it doesn't make any sense. You know, and, and even though in, in this case, Paul actually does offer them hope. You know, God does actually spare every passenger on this ship. But, but it was still a traumatic ordeal. You know, it must have been horrible to go through. You know, because God never promises an easy life. You know, li- listen to, to Paul's description. Uh, this is in uh, 2 Corinthians 11. Um, this is Paul's description of his, his experience in ministry. He says he experienced far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I was received at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That was his experience of ministry. And, and, and it's not that God has no care for his people. He, he does. 
he cares for them deeply, but he's more concerned with saving their souls than giving us an e- easy life. And so as I, as I was driving home from hearing that, that message of you know, agricultural prosperity, you know, I, I did pray for our crops. I prayed that we would be safe from bushfires and that there, there wouldn't be rain that would, and frost that would come and destroy our crops. That, that's, a, that's a good thing to pray for. It's okay to pray for those things. You know, that, but not with any authority that I've been given and, and not with any promise or guarantee that he'll always answer a yes and always give me what I want and always prosperous and that nothing bad will ever happen. And, and a passage that I immediately thought of is uh, in, in Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18, which again has kind of the same agricultural vibe. It says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So that's what we're supposed to find our hope and our joy in, is the salvation of the Lord. You know, if we don't have salvation, nothing else matters. You know, in the midst of the storm, and in the midst of the storms of our lives, and, and, and more importantly, in the midst of the storm of final judgment, unless we're clinging, clinging to Jesus and finding hope in his salvation, then nothing else matters. You know, Paul Paul passed on the message that no one would die on the ship. But it was only for those who were on the ship. And once again, the people thought they knew better than the voice of God, the message from God. Verse 30, it says, And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. You know, don't don't presume, presume to know more than God. Don't, don't trust in anything else for your salvation. There is only salvation in Jesus. You know, not, not the one who came to, to give you a storm-free life, uh, but the one who has come to give you salvation. And as the storms come, they should push us closer to God. There's a, a great quote from Charles Spurgeon. Uh, if that works. There we go. Did I shamelessly mixed and steal sermon in this passage? Uh, it says, um, In seasons of severe trial, the Christian has nothing on earth that he can trust to and is therefore compelled to cast himself on his God alone. When his vessel is on its beam ends and no human deliverance can avail, he must simply and entirely trust himself to the providence and care of God. O oh, happy storm that wrecks a man on such a rock as this. O oh, blessed hurricane that drives the soul to God and God alone. When a man is so poor, so friendless, so helpless that he has nowhere else to turn, he flies into his father's arms. When he is burdened with troubles so pressing and so peculiar that he cannot tell them to any but his God, he may be thankful for them, for he will learn more of his Lord then than at any other time. It's a very powerful perspective on suffering that's uh, good to learn these things before the suffering comes because it's, it's, it's really hard you know, once it comes to try and foster up this kind of attitude.
the, the next extraordinary thing that we see in this passage is that, that God doesn't just use suffering and storms for our good to, to make us cling to God, but he uses strange and unexpected means to, to save his people. You know, see, Paul wanted to go to Rome. That's why he appealed to Caesar. The Roman officials and the Jewish king, they wanted to send him to Caesar. You know, the, the captain and the sailors and the owner of the ship, they wanted to go to Rome to get paid. So ev- everyone wanted to go to Rome. But God wanted to save his people in Malta. And where did they end up? They ended up in Malta. And what I love about things like this is that, that no one gets to take credit. You know, Paul didn't go, well, I set out to, to go out there and rescue the people of Malta. You know, he, he didn't make any of these plans. No one made any of these plans but God. And so who gets the credit for saving these people? Well, God and God alone. And, you know, I often think about that with, with my own life of, of where I've been placed. Of uh, You know, I know that, that my first lab job, I applied for a whole bunch of different labs uh, within the one the one complex and and I only heard back from from one and, and got that job and and then I ended up with a boss who loved talking about theology he was an atheist but he loved talking about the bible and would continually pick my brain with questions and then I actually got to meet all the other bosses with with the jobs that I had applied for and all of them were really closed off and wouldn't have a bar of it and didn't want to talk about it at all and I happened to be at the one the one lab where he wanted to continually pick my brain about what Christians think about everything and and I look back and go, well, I can't take credit for any of that. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know any of them from a bar of soap. Uh, but, but you just know that, that God places us in certain places for a reason. He's called you here now, the people in your life, so that you can be a faithful witness to them. You know, e- even when life hasn't actually gone the way that you'd like it, maybe, maybe this hasn't actually gone to plan, where you're living, the job that you've got, or the family or circumstances, whatever it is in life, Things haven't gone to plan, and yet God has called you here for a purpose, to reach the people around you. And the, the final point is that God knows the end from the beginning. You know, Despite all the chaos and the storms and the uncertainty, that the detours along the way, Paul did actually end up in Rome. You know, he did end up making it to, to appear before Caesar and spend a couple of years in Rome. You know, God had promised him that he would make it to Rome. He promised him that he would stand before Caesar. So all the while in the midst of that storm, he knew where he was going. He knew where he'd end up. You know, it doesn't mean that the storm all of a sudden would have been, you know, would have been a breeze. It doesn't mean that it wouldn't have been easy. He, he was still hungry when they hadn't eaten for 14 days. He still experienced that hunger. They still probably experienced seasickness. They still would have experienced the fear of the waves crashing over them, the, the pain of having to jump in the water and clamber along planks. The, the pain and the suffering was very real, but he still knew the end goal. He still knew that he was going to make it to Rome because God had told him that he would make it there. And so it's so much easier to have hope in the midst of the storm when we know the end from the beginning. And the same is, is true for us. We, we know how this is going to end. You know, life might not be going in the direction that you planned. The, the path is uncertain, but the end goal is clear. You know, God will make us more like Christ and ultimately he will save us. You know, one day we are going to be with him. You know, whether, whether we die and go to him or he returns, we will be with our Lord Jesus. You 
that we have the promises of Scripture that say, you know, he who began a good work will complete it. We just need to stay focused on that end goal. You know, no matter what storms come our way, no matter what unexpected changes happen, no matter what suffering hinders our earthly life, you know, we can know that it's not going to hinder our salvation. It doesn't change our standing before God. It's not going to hinder God's plan for us. So I just want to end with um, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So he went to that cross for us, died for our sins because he knew the end goal. He knew that glory was to come, that saving us, his people. And so in the same way, we can face the storms of life, looking ahead to the end goal, that we'll be seeing the glory of the face of Jesus, face to face. You know, to, to quote the hymn that the, you know, that the cares of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let, let's pray. Gracious Father, we, we thank you that you are so merciful to us in, in the midst of the storms of life. You are still so good to us. You are sovereign. You are in control. You know what is best for us and you are working all things together for our good. And I thank you that we can find hope, not in this life, but we can find hope in you and you alone. We thank you for your great salvation that you provide in Jesus. Lord, help us to trust in you more and more and praise you for all that you've done for us. Amen.